Next on Light on the Hill, we consider the prophecies contained in 1st and 2nd Samuel that are largely overlooked. So many people say there's no prophecy in 1st and 2nd Samuel, and there's prophecy all over 1st and 2nd Samuel, right? It's all over the place. We see it absolutely everywhere. And God continued to communicate with his people through the words of a prophet saying what would actually happen. And sometimes people listen, and other times they didn't. And when they didn't, it made a terrible situation go down. I have That peace only comes from you. I have found that joy only comes from you. Cause all I need is When you think of Bible prophecy, books like Revelation, Daniel, Matthew, Ezekiel, and First and Second Thessalonians often come to mind. But as we're learning through our present series in the volume of the book, the entire Bible contains prophecy, including First and Second Samuel, as we'll hear today on Light on the Hill. Here's Pastor James Cadiz. All right. Let's jump right in, and obviously we have gotten through a lot so far. We've done Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, and Ruth, and uh, there's a lot that we have picked up on, and of course, where we have left off now is where we enter into the book of First and Second Samuel. Now, let me just simply say this. When we look at First and Second Samuel as a whole, we are all about Bible prophecy throughout these books, okay? There is a lot of it going on. Now, a lot of people might look at this and say, well, James, I don't really look anywhere in First or Second Samuel and find an area that talks about something that is going to take place in the future, yet my response to you might be, that might be the case in an overwhelming majority of these books, but the problem is, is if you blow it off as being non-prophetic, well, then you have to throw away the discussion of the Messiah, right? Because when you look at First and Second Samuel, we are looking at so much that is directly tied to the Messiah, and there are many prophecies that exist that relate to David and the son of David, and if you do not understand the dynamic that takes place in First and Second Samuel, you will never understand the essence of many of these prophetic statements that are actually being said here. And this is very, very important for you to understand because without a fundamental understanding of what exists here in these books, you're not going to understand the messianic line, right? You're not going to understand where Jesus uh, came from in terms of how God established that in the human human line, right? But you're also not going to understand the significance of how God set it up for the purpose of establishing the reality of everything that he declared to be true in the resurrection of Christ, okay? So there's a lot here and a lot to be uh, said with respect to this. And so we have to start from the beginning when we get into the book of 1 Samuel. By the way, I will just simply say this, um, the book of 1 Samuel, believe it or not, is 
is oftentimes referred to not as 1 Samuel. It is oftentimes referred to as the first book of the kings, believe it or not. 2 Samuel is oftentimes referred to as the second book of the kings. And when you get into th- uh, what we would call First and Second Kings, it should actually be called Third and Fourth Kings, believe it or not. It would be referred to as the third book of the kings, the, f- the fourth book of the kings. And then when you go over Chronicles, Chronicles would be referred to as the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah, right? And of course, there is a reference material to the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel, but those Chronicles are missing. We don't know where those books are. We know that they are referred to in the Bible on multiple occasions, but we do not have those Chronicles. But the reason why we know the stories of the Northern Kings is through the Chronicles uh, of the Kings of Judah, because we see uh, things being given to us there. And of course, in the Kings, we also get a very good understanding of some of the wicked kings that actually existed. So to understand this is very important because you have to know that the reason why we do not know, at least the general assumption of the reason why we do not know where the chronicles of the kings of the north are or the kings of Israel is because there was not a single righteous king. All of them were very wicked kings, right? The um, first king that we have of the northern kingdom would have been Jeroboam, right? Or Jeroboam, as, as many of you would say. And uh, starting with him, they were all very, very evil people, right? Very, very evil people. And of course, um, we know that the first king of the southern kingdom uh, would have been Saul, which we go over uh, right here. But we're not talking about the southern kingdom. He was the nation of Israel as a whole before they broke into the southern kingdom. But when we talk about the southern kingdom and we talk about the kingly line of the southern kingdom, they come from the line that was established when Israel was a whole, right? So if you remember, King David was, of course, the first king of the dynasty of kings that existed in the southern kingdom. And you had David, then you had King Solomon. Then, of course, after Solomon, you had Solomon's son, Rehoboam, right, who basically the kingdom split under his lack of wisdom and understanding and discernment. And then that's when things kind of went their separate ways. Now, all of this is important because when you start looking at the judges of the nation of Israel, Samuel was highly regarded as the last judge of Israel, basically, because through the leadership of Samuel, and of course, Samuel himself was, of course, a man who was um, also a prophet, of course, but the story of how Samuel came about is also very important. And when you stop for a moment to examine kind of how everything sort of uh, went downhill from the moment where all of that started happening, you begin to understand the history of the nation of Israel a lot better, which is why First and Second Samuel are critical, right? This is why you have to understand it because, again, as I said before, if you don't, it's going to be hard. So, First and Second Samuel starts importantly with the picture of a woman by the name of Hannah. Now, in our intro, I talked about this a little bit, um, and I said why Hannah was such a significant woman, and perhaps it was unique to understand the story of Hannah and what had happened with her. And of course, if you remember, Hannah was one of two wives of a man by the name of Elkanah, right? And if you remember the story of this guy, he was a man who deeply loved his wife, 
Hannah, but Hannah was incapable of bringing to him an actual child, right? And so the idea here was that if you were a man and you married a woman, and for whatever reason that woman was considered to be infertile or incapable of having a child, then according to their laws and customs, you were allowed to divorce that woman and go and find another woman to have that child with. And the woman that you had divorced would be highly regarded as a woman who was incapable of having children and thus she would live single for the rest of her life. It was a sort of a, a terrible uh, condemnation upon a woman who was incapable of having a child. And so when it had been determined that Hannah was incapable of having a child, Elkanah loved her so much that what he did was he married another woman, yet he chose to keep her. And not only did he keep her and stay close to her and was married to her and loved her, but he also gave her preferential treatment. And he made it very clear that, of course, she was the one um, that he had loved more, and he made that very clear. Yet his other wife actually started having children, and then when she did, her jealousy drove her, her jealousy of the attention that her husband was giving to Hannah drove her to tease Hannah and make fun of Hannah and actually put Hannah down because she didn't have any children and, um, uh, you know, that type of thing, and went on and on and on and on and on about all of that so that when that actually took place, Hannah was very deeply disturbed by it all. She was vexed in her heart. It was a, a terrible situation. And of course, what she did in essence was went to the Lord and um, in going to the Lord, uh, she begged God to give her a baby. And of course, Hannah's prayer is the establishment of the first of the many prophecies that we read about in the book of Samuel, because as Hannah prays and seeks the Lord concerning this and ask, remember there was a, a priest whose name was Eli, who was actually there. And Eli had actually thought that Hannah was drunk out of her mind, if you remember, because she was crying and she was bitter and she was, um, wasn't wording her words out loud, but she was with her lips wording the words that were in her heart. So Eli sees her kind of going, you know, and acting really crazy and going, ah, ah, and doing all kinds of things. And he said, woman, you're drunk. What is wrong with you? Why are you drinking alcohol? And of course, Hannah kind of comes right back at him and says something uh, to her that basically says, look, I'm not doing this. I'm just praying with anguish and grief because I don't have a child. And I've asked God. And of course, Eli basically says something interesting. He says, go in peace and may the God of Israel grant what you have asked of him. And of course, in due time, we know that Samuel was, of course, born, and his name is meaning, of course, Samuel is heard of God. That's, that's what it means. And so a very uh, powerful recognition of the prayer that Hannah had made over to the Lord. She named her son that way, meaning God answers um, our prayers, which, by the way, there's a few other uh, Hebrew names that mean almost exactly the same thing, uh, which my daughter is a female version of what that same phrase is. Uh, her name actually goes to mean the same thing. God has answered our prayers. And um, so there's uh, different ways of uh, uh, expressing what God had shown you concerning your children. And oftentimes what God showed you concerning your children in those days was expressed through naming them, right? And there was always something that was prophetic a, a majority of times with the name that was being given to them. And of course, that was indeed the case. And God had made it very clear, or Hannah had made it very clear to God. Uh, Hannah said, listen, if you give me a son, I'm gonna give him back to you. I'm gonna dedicate him to you. And that's exactly 
exactly what had happened, right? So when we look at the second chapter of 1 Samuel, it gives us this uh, beautiful prayer that Hannah makes, right? And recognize the greatness of God in answering her prayer. And of course, super, you know, th there was a, a clear, very obvious manifestation of the strength of God, right? Of the power of God. Uh, the supernatural manifestation of God's power in Samuel actually uh, being born. So this is interesting because there's a contrast here that I want you to pick up on, and it relates to another prophetic word that is related to Eli and his family. And if you remember looking at 1 Samuel chapter 2, um, God blessed Hannah and Samuel, but the sons of Eli proved to be very wicked people. And I think that this is very important that we understand this, right? They were wicked guys, and in their wickedness, there was a man of God who actually goes to Eli and gave him a prophetic word that said that it was not going to be good for the sons, right? He does this in chapter 2, and it's very sad because what he says concerning his sons is not so good. Because if you go to chapter 2 of 2 Samuel, and you go near the end of chapter 2, and you get into verse 31 of chapter 2, look what it says. It says, Behold, the days come that I will cut off thine arm and the arm of thy father's house, that there shall not be an old man in thy house. And thou shalt see uh, an uh, enemy in my habitation in all the wealth which God shall give Israel, and there shall not be an old man in thine house forever. And the man of thine whom I shall not cut off from mine altar shall be to consume thine uh, eyes and to grieve thine heart, and all the increase of thine house shall die in the flower of their age. And it's terrible because if you actually think about it and you look at the story of what uh, had actually happened, and it is terribly tragic, is God basically told Eli, because of the rebellion of your children and you as a father not taking care of that rebellion of the children, literally allowing it to be, he says, nobody is going to be allowed to grow old in your household. And the only person that will be allowed to grow old in your household will be you so that you can grow to see your grown children die, basically. That's the, the, the prophetic word that was actually given. And of course, we know that that is something that indeed did come true, right? And he said this, he said this in verse 34, he made it very clear. He said, and this shall be a sign unto thee that shall come upon thy two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, in one day they shall both die, or in one day shall die both of them. And um, it's a very sad thing. And then, but look at what God says next. He says, and I will raise me up a faithful priest that shall do according to uh, that which is in mine heart and in my mind, and I will build him a sure house, and he shall walk before mine anointed forever. And of course, the prophetic word that is given here, and one that is important, and one that's something we should be paying attention to, is the declaration that is made, of course, of the Christ, right? The coming Messiah, the one who would come to be that person, and how God would actually do this, right? It goes beyond the immediate line of priests that was partially fulfilled here, it ultimately would be fulfilled by Christ. Because I do, I do think it is important to also point this out, that the priesthood was taken away from Eli by a person by the name of Abithyar, which if you know uh, the story of him, who was also a descendant of 
Eli, right? Two, of course, Zadok, who was a descendant of Eliezer, uh, who was happened to be a direct son of Aaron. So God did honor his word in the sense that there were other priests that came in and did a very, very good job. So again, God's word made those things very clear, made it very true concerning that which was going to happen and what, what took place. And indeed, it did take place, right? Those were the things that happened. And I think that it's important to recognize that, to understand it, and to know that when God says something is going to happen, it's true. But this does extend beyond that in that the greatest of priests that was prophesied here in Samuel uh, definitely related to, of course, the high priest that we know would be the final one, the one that was going to be the superior one, the one told us about in Hebrews and wherever we know that we are talking about Christ, right? The Messiah. And this is very, very um, important. And I think it's something that is wise that we should look at and consider for just a second. And of course, when you get into 1 Samuel chapter 3, you then begin to see the manifestation of the curse that has been placed on Eli's house that ends up being manifested here. And again, these things, as they relate to God's word, all were very prophetic and all were very important to the story and to the line here. So uh, when you get into 1 Samuel chapter 6, then there is a prophetic word that's given concerning the Ark, uh, the Ark of the Covenant and the return that happened there. If you remember the story there, and we don't have time to get into it in detail, you remember the story of the Ark of the Covenant being taken away by, of course, the Philistines. And as they uh, take the Ark of the Covenant to the house of Dagon, this happens in chapter 5, uh, there were some severe consequences that ended up coming as a result of that. And, of course, in 1 Samuel chapter 6, all the way through chapter 7, we can see the story of how that ark had been captured by the Philistines uh, when they defeated Israel at war. And that was the, the result of some things that had not been done that were glorifying to God. So God allowed those types of things to happen. And then when you start looking a little bit closely into the story, right, you begin to see a description of something very interesting that we're given here. Let's look at verses 8 and 9 of chapter 6 and look at what it says in chapter six it says this it says and take the ark of the lord and lay it upon a cart and put the jewels of gold which you return him for a trespass offering in a coffer by the side thereof and send it away that it may go and see if it goeth up by the way of his own coast to Beit Shemesh. Then he that hath done us this great evil, but if uh, not, then we shall know it is uh, not in his hand that smote us. It was a chance that happened to us. So what I just read to you was a partial quote from a story that had happened when they realized how dangerous this ark was and how bad it was for them because they recognized that it was not good for them to keep it around they basically said we need to send that thing away put it on a cart basically push it forward and if that cart goes in the direction of where it's supposed to go to Beit Shemesh, then we will know that this was exactly what we thought it was, right? That this was something that was causing our demise, that we needed to be away from it. Let's just send it out there. But if it is not, then we'll know it was just a crazy, you know, coincidence that it happened. We'll keep the ark and we'll continue to use it and exploit it as uh, we said. And the reality of it is they sent messages um, when you start looking at this, let's skip down to verse 19 really quickly. Let's just look at verse 19 and I'll read it. It says, and he smote the men of Beit Shemesh because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. Even he smote the people 
50,000 and threescore and 10 men. And the people lamented because the Lord had smitten many of the people with a great slaughter. And the men of Beit Shemesh said, who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? And to whom shall he go up from this? And they sent messengers to inhabitants of Kirjaharim saying, the Philistines have brought again the ark of the Lord. Come you down and fetch it up to you. So they, it happened exactly as they suspected, but the ark brought for them lots of disaster, lots of problems, and they realized we want nothing to do with this, and that's when they send the message to do it. And that is when we get a very interesting prophecy that relates to a sort of a kickstarter for victory that God was going to bring to the nation of Israel. And this is where we get into God making a promise in 1 Samuel chapter 7, to Samuel for deliverance for the house of Israel. And he basically says, listen, go over there and you are going to be taken. You're going to be given the Philistines. They're going to be removed and the Philistines will be put in your hands and you are going to have victory, right? So following the return to the Lord, when they chose to go to the Lord and seek him again, God gave Israel great military victory over the Philistines. We can see that in verses 10 through 13. Um, in chapter 7, you begin to see that, and it literally fulfilled the prophecy that was given to Samuel. Now, why am I bringing these small prophecies up? You would think that they're not significant, right? But I'm bringing it up because I want to point out to you the fact that, that so many people say there's no prophecy in First and Second Samuel, and there's prophecy all over First and Second Samuel, right? It's all over the place. We see it absolutely everywhere. And God continued to communicate with his people through the words of a prophet saying what would actually happen. And sometimes people listen and other times they didn't. And when they didn't, it made a terrible situation go down. You've been listening to Pastor James Cadiz on Light on the Hill and part of our series in the volume of the book. We're going from Genesis to Revelation, emphasizing the many passages pertinent to Bible prophecy. You can access today's study and any part of the series you may have missed online at lightonthehillradio.com or listen to Pastor James through the Light on the Hill app. Are you enjoying Light on the Hill? Send us an email and let us know the station you listen to and what you're getting out of these programs. It means a lot and helps us see what God is doing through the radio and internet ministries. There's a place to contact us at our website, lightonthehillradio.com. If the Lord leads, we'd also appreciate your financial partnership. Each gift that comes in goes straight to the ministry, helping us to get the word of God out on stations and platforms like this one all across the country. Donate online at lightonthehillradio.com or give through the Light on the Hill app. Have you seen the live shows and daily videos that we release on social media? Many of them relate to Bible prophecy and help understand current events with a biblical worldview. You'll find them at jamescadiz.com. Now let's return to our Bible study about the prophecies of First and Second Samuel. Then we get into the story of Samuel's sons, and of course that was a seriously unfortunate and terrible situation, right? And that was the fact that they were actually very corrupt men, uh, Samuel's sons. And when you begin to look at the story of what had actually happened there and what began to take place, that was the conduit by which we began to see the idea of human kings being introduced into Israel, right? And look, I have to say this because I think it's important. There are consequences to sin, right? There are consequences to sin. And he made it very, very clear. He said, hey, listen, this is, this is not going to be a good situation if you allow yourself exactly what you've been told to do and it creates a great consequence let's go to first samuel chapter 8 we'll start we'll read the beginning of it right look at what it says in the beginning of chapter 8 and i, and I want to draw the parallel for you here right 
We're not going to read all 22 verses because uh, those are the verses relevant to the story that we're talking about here, but we will read a few of them. It says that it came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. Perhaps that may have been a great mistake, right? He's old. He made his sons the judges over Israel. They weren't real judges. You know, again, Samuel, as I said, was regarded as the last true judge of Israel. I think that's kind of an important thing to note here, right? Now, the name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of the second was Abiah, and they were judges in Beersheba. And his sons walked not in his ways, uh, but turned aside after lucre and took bribes and perverted judgment. Then all the elders of Israel gathered themselves together and came to Samuel unto Ramah and said unto him, Behold, thou art old, and thy sons walk not in thy ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. So I want you to understand what had happened here, right? Understand the fact that the, the idea that Samuel's sons did not obey the word of God and Samuel made a bad decision in putting his sons over a certain area was in essence the last catalyst that was used. It was literally the straw that broke the camel's back that motivated the nation of Israel to no longer want God as their king and to actually bring in a real king, right? And of course, God was the realest of kings ever, right? There's no such thing as to say, well, we want a real king when you actually had God as your king. He's the most real king that any king that could ever be had was, but they did not want God as their king anymore. They wanted a human king. And understand, it was their perception of who God was through the corruption of the judges that represented God that forced them or that caused them to want to go down the road of the mentality that says, we want a new king. And so it's kind of an interesting picture when you look at everything that's been assembled and put together here and it is a very ugly picture when you look at how corruption can actually damage whole governments. And this is something that has always existed. When corruption is brought into play, it, it, it really disillusions a nation. It damages a nation. It ruins people. And that's exactly what it happened. And I think that it's just terrible, absolutely terrible, terrible that it had to happen the way that it did. We'll come back to First and Second Samuel next time on Light on the Hill. We're continuing through the Bible with an emphasis on prophecy. This program is brought to you by Calvary Chapel, Signal Hill. I have found that peace only comes from you. I have found that joy only comes from you. Cause all I need is 